Good morning. If you're joining us online, good morning. Welcome. We're excited to continue in the book of Ephesians today. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. And uh, last week, we covered Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And we really spent some time uh, just sitting on this phrase, but God. Uh, one of the most powerful phrases in the Bible repeated throughout the Old and the New Testament that really helps us to kind of center our perspective, our theology, our ideology on this idea that it was not us that did anything of our own accord that saved us, but God. Um, and, and, and really, uh, traditionally, the section of scripture that we're going to go over today and last week, so, so really verses 1 all the way to verse 10, would normally kind of be preached together because it's kind of a big run-on statement. The problem is that it's so thick, and, it, and, and there's so much depth to what God has done on our behalf that I didn't feel like... Uh, I could get that covered in a week. And uh, that proved true since I went fairly long last week, and I only did half of it. So uh, this week, we're going to cover verses 6 through 10 and try to get through the second half of this statement. But uh, I'm going to have to go back and just, just at least read to you what we covered last week in case you missed it. So starting in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, that's every single one of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's where we stopped. And we're going to keep going today. Uh, just briefly, we were dead. If you missed last week, we, we talked about we were all the way dead, not, not mostly dead, like in The Princess Bride, but we were all the way dead. And dead people don't resurrect themselves. That, that is by nature something we understand from human nature is that when you're dead, you have no power to do anything. You don't respond to anything. You, you have no willpower. When you're dead, you won't worry about not eating that next cookie, right? Why? Because you're dead. And so we didn't will ourselves into salvation. We weren't buried in the grave, and then we thought, you know what would be a good idea, guys? Resurrection. We were dead. It took God in, according to verses 1 through 5, his mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are different things, right? Mercy is when uh, you do not get the punishment you deserve. Mercy is when I messed up many times as a kid, should have gotten whooped, dad looked at me and gave me mercy. Mercy is not getting a punishment I deserve. Grace is getting a gift I don't deserve. Okay, mercy is you are uh, guilty of a crime and you're in the courtroom and you're waiting on the sentencing and you know you did it and everybody else knows you did it too and the judge looks at you and says, I'll take your place. I'll serve the punishment for your crime. You don't have to serve the punishment for your crime. That is mercy. Grace is after the trial coming to you and writing you an inheritance and giving you $100 million. Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. And then we get to this concept of, in verses 6 through 10, and we're going to sit on this for the whole message, what do we do with that? I'm, I, I'm an application guy, okay? I'm, all of my commentaries for the Bible are application commentaries. I mean, I like theology, but if it doesn't lead me to something to do, I get really restless. You know what I'm saying? We all met that guy, I'm that guy. I'm restless if I don't have something to do. I gotta put my hands on it. I wanna go get something done. Uh, talking about it's wonderful, right? But, but at the end of the day, and, and look, most of us come from a blue-collar background. 
At the end of the day, there's a couple guys at work that get stuff done. You know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people that talk, and then there's a couple of people that get stuff done. I love to get stuff done. So all the commentaries on my bookcase are about getting stuff done. There are all these like life application commentaries because, I wa- yeah, I want to I understand the root of the Greek and the theology. I mean, that's really good. It's really in-depth, but not if it doesn't lead me to action. And the Bible's the same way because it's going to give us all this deep, rich theology. Theology is the study of God, the knowledge of God, learning more about God to lead us, like James would say, to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. We want to do something. And listen, you're restless too. I know you're restless. I, I get the emails. We want to do something. We want to go make an impact for the kingdom. Now, sometimes our restlessness gets misguided. That's why we have to put it to practice. That's why we're practicing our faith, like Pastor Mark was talking about. We were dead. Now, because we've been raised with Christ, in verse 6, we're going to talk about what we're supposed to do with that according to Ephesians chapter 2. Here we go. And, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him, this is Christ, This is God raising us up, seating us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Colossians 2 uh, verse 12 says this, and you'll see this idea of being raised up with Christ multiple times in the New Testament. This, This is a terminology that's used a lot to try to give you a better perspective of what life after salvation looks like. Colossians 2 12 would say it this way. Having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, so in the same way that Jesus conquered physical death, okay, and we could probably spend a lot of time just with this idea that at, death was conquered, most of us, one of our greatest fears, we don't talk about this, but most of us, one of our greatest fears is death. Part of human nature is that we instinctually don't want death, right? Like your instinct will kick in when that, when that car is coming down the road and, and you walk too close and you jump. Like we're, we're wired to push back against death, for it to be something that we fear. What Jesus did is he conquered death. He conquered physical death. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when, uh, the, when, when Eve makes this decision to disobey God, what, is God's, what does God say He says, like, you can't eat that because if you do, you'll die. See, if you disobey God, that sin, that separation, that lack of holiness brings into this creation that is perfect, this idea of physical death, decay. Nothing decayed in the garden. People didn't get sick. They didn't get old. Their hip didn't get bad. Look, my hip is hurting all the time. I'm not even that old yet. Things just get bad. They decay, they die, and it's tied to this disobedience. So, so what happens when Jesus never sins and dies? Now we have a problem, right? Because the very nature of God said that death only entered the world because there was disobedience from God. If we had never disobeyed God, there never would have been death. So all of a sudden we put to, to death the son of God who's never sinned and we have a problem. The formula doesn't work. There was no sin. So he is resurrected. He conquers death physically. And in so doing, he conquers death spiritually. We, in being awakened by God, were buried with Christ. And this is why we do baptism as a symbol, an outward symbol of what occurred inwardly. And we are raised with God in the same way that God raised Jesus from the grave. We are raised from the grave through salvation. And then it gets better, seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's the mercy and the grace. That's the the escape from the punishment, but also now the royalty, the inheritance, the sons and daughters of God in the throne room of God. We we just... we just keep missing this. This is the, I, I think, the most overlooked, uh, underestimated, forgotten part of the Christian story is that God didn't just save us to leave us where we were. Did, did you understand the travesty of what would happen if God saved you and then left you to do life on your own? 
Like, like if God had, he pulled me up out of my muck and mud, if he raised me up from death and, 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 and made me alive again and then said, hey, Daniel, good luck. I've probably taken me five minutes to be back down in the mud again. God loves us far too much to simply have revived us and then left us on our own in hopes that we would figure it out. Instead, after saving us, he seats us in the throne room of God next to Jesus because through Christ, we're now sons and daughters of the king. That's a big deal. That means we have authority. We have status. We have power. We have identity that's all new, and we got to figure out how to kind of live life with this new status, this new identity in Christ, being a son or a daughter of the king. And so all of a sudden, this is why it's, it's, it's such a, a stark difference, is we went from being dead and buried to not only being spiritually alive, but being in the throne room with the authority of a son or a daughter of the king, and you got to learn life like that. And let's be honest, if you've met new Christians, they ain't figured it out. I've been a Christian a while, and I can't tell you that I figured it out. It, it, it's, it's jarring. It's different. It's underestimated. I want to come back to this because in verse 10, Paul's going to kind of tie a bow on this idea of, of this new status of being royalty, and I'm going to, I'm going to look at that. But let's get to verse 7. It says, it says this in verse 7. So that, so this is the why. Every time you see so that, it means that all of the previous statements are being tied to what he's about to say. So we just had six verses, right? But God, I mean, just the depths of our depravity, the fact that we were useless and hopeless, but God comes in in his mercy and his grace. He saves us. He awakens us. He makes us alive again. He puts a new heart in us. He puts us in the throne room. Verse six so or seven, so that in the coming ages, that's right now, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. More kindness? More. So, so he's going to awaken us from death. He's going to save us from a penalty that we couldn't save ourselves from. He's going to place us in the throne room. He's going to give us a status as a son or a daughter of the king. He's going to give us the authority of someone who sits in the throne room, has access to the king, so that he can show us more grace and kindness, immeasurably more. This is why I'm telling you that it's so underestimated and so overlooked in the Christian church is that we don't think like this. We don't think like this. Why did God do all of this for us God's motivation for saving us would be that the realization of how good he is would slowly dawn on you. The, the, the work of transformation in your life is actually this very slow realization of how good God is. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It happens over time. Like even after you're saved, you, just, you don't really get it you don't, you don't fully get it. You haven't been able to wrap your mind around how good God is and how great he is and, and how substantial the work is that he's doing in you. Because if, if we could just get it, if you could get a full glimpse, a full comprehension of how good God is and how kind he is toward you and the love that he has for you that motivated him to do what he did, you'd stop struggling holding on to your old self. You'd stop struggling putting your fists around the old nature and the old things that tempted you. you. You would just walk away from them. Now, listen, I cannot tell you why he, I don't know why God doesn't just fix us. I, there are plenty of times that my prayer life has been, God, would you just fix me? Can, I, can we stop the 40-year wait, right? Can, can, you just, can we just be done with it? But he allows us to slowly comprehend the immeasurable richness of his kindness toward us. It's intentional. The Bible tells us it's intentional. It was meant to be a slow process, that, that we will grow into him and realize more and more and more the goodness of God. Now, this is actually good news. I, I realize this is frustrating, but this is good news. Let me tell you why this is good news. This is good news because it means that the struggle that you're having is actually okay. Okay. 
Yeah. It means when you walked in here and you thought there were two or three or five or ten things that you really hope no one found out about because it was a struggle and Christians aren't supposed to struggle, <clears throat> that's a joke. That it, 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 the struggle's actually okay. That, it, that I'm not outside of his design because I'm struggling to live the Christian life. Just because I don't get it all fully yet doesn't mean that I'm the one that's broken and everyone else has figured it out. It means that I'm the one that's broken and everyone else is lying. It means that he's the patient father and I'm the 15 and a half year old trying to learn on my learner's permit how to drive and I just keep hitting cones and, and, and barriers and running over curbs and running through lights and then like, that's actually okay. It's part of the design. I'm teaching someone how to drive right now. Listen, this is how it works. We got here today. My, my daughter drove us here today and we parked crooked. I made her do it again. And then we finally, I turned the car off and I exhaled and I was like, success? And she looked at me and she goes, what, what we just did, that was a success? And I go, we didn't kill anyone? And I didn't have to use my insurance card. It's a win. It's a win. That is how your heavenly father looks at you. He loves you. He didn't remove the struggle from you. He tells you in scripture that it's going to be a slow process that you're going to learn through and struggle through and that there's going to be a grind and that you're going to learn what it looks like to put more and more and deepening dependence on him as you fall in love with him and realize that he loves you far more than you love him and that that is actually the way it works. And that's good news. That's good news because we don't sit in the shame of the struggle anymore. Because he designed us this way to, to, to slowly grow into him. He knows you and I are a mess and he is allowing us because he's patient with us. So stop shaming yourself when you fall short because Jesus isn't doing it. That's not Jesus in your ear shaming you. He desires your holiness. He desires your obedience, but he could have zapped us and instantly perfected us, and he chose not to so that you and I would understand slowly over the course of our lives the depth, the immense greatness of his goodness and kindness toward us. So stop listening to the voice of condemnation in your life. That's not Jesus. That's the accuser. That's a different spiritual being. It's all bark and no bite. Don't give it any credence in your life. Verse eight, I'm gonna keep, keep, tie this all back to so that, because this is all the why, okay? This is the Bible explaining to you why you've been saved. So that, all right, verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Now, what was a gift of God? First and foremost, salvation was a gift of God. But the very faith that you have to have in God to be saved was given to you from God. You, listen to me, I didn't have enough faith to be saved. I, you need to hear that. It was not self-actualization. You know the old phrase, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, which is physically impossible? It was physically, it was spiritually impossible for me to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It was spiritually impossible for me to generate enough faith in me of my own accord to put my faith in Christ. God gave me the faith to put in him. It is by grace, and it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. The very phrase grace Charis in Greek means an unmerited favor, unearned favor. It's the lottery. It's the, it's the uh, long lost uncle in Ethiopia that left you the inheritance that is actually not spam this time. It's the courtroom pardon, mercy, and then winning the lottery on top of it, grace. And it's not of your own doing. The saving wasn't of your own doing. The faith wasn't of your own doing. God was responsible and is responsible for all of it. Listen, um, 
the be best explanation I've ever heard of this when it comes to how you had enough faith to put it in Jesus Christ. It says, if you've ever, if you've ever seen a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there on its own. <laughs> Can you picture that? Right? You got like a five foot tall fence post. Turtles have like two inch legs. Someone stuck a turtle up there. For fun, I guess. I, I don't know who's... I mean, it's got to be really boring that you're putting... Anyways, okay. <laughs> Your salvation is like a turtle on a fence post. You didn't get up there. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't scale the fence post. Every part of that was God because your two-inch legs of faith weren't getting you up there. Amen? When you understand the goodness of God, you begin to realize what a gift salvation really is. Now, verse nine, this is the warning in the middle of the phrase, and then we're gonna get, then we're gonna get to the big takeaway. The big takeaway is big. I mean, it's verse nine, here's the warning. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. If salvation, or even if, if the faith that we, we needed to put in God in order to be saved, if, if any of that was of our own doing, if, if we had a hand in it at all, and it wasn't 100% all from God, then, then we weren't completely unrighteous. If I could have been involved in my salvation, if I could have been at least a little bit responsible, then I wasn't completely depraved. I wasn't completely unrighteous. I had a little bit of goodness in me. Which is, that's the trick, right? That's the, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The trick is that like I got a little bit of goodness. I just need to be straightened out. You know, God, if you just nudge me in the right direction, then I'll take over from here. You know, Jesus is my co-pilot. God says, no one is righteous. No, not one. There's no righteousness in you. You're dead. And honestly, like, I, there's nothing more brutally honest than the idea that I was completely unrighteous. Because I can't even imagine having like 1% of the credit for my salvation. Do you understand the arrogance and the stupidity of believing you were partially responsible for saving yourself? Like that is such an American concept. I mean, there's no, we, we are so prideful. Ooh. I, all I can think of is the Andy Griffith show. You remember Barney Fife? Like, now, uh, granted, it's fiction, right? But Barney Fife was always taking credit for stuff, and you do just laugh because he was so bad. You know, like something would, 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 he'd make nine mistakes, but it would work out, and he'd be like, it's a good thing I was here. <laughs> I feel like that when it comes to salvation. Like, I don't, I, all I do is mess up, and God saves me, and if I were to take any credit in any part of this, it'd be like Barney Fife. And the Bible's warning you warning you that to even, to even shift your mindset toward I'm somehow responsible for this leads down this road of arrogance and pride and boastfulness and we could do a whole word study on where pride leads. It's not good. All right, verse 10. We're gonna spend all of our time in verse 10 today because this is the kicker. This is the kicker. Verse 10. Tie it back to verse six, so that, this is why we're saved, right? Five verses on why we're saved. I'm gonna end it right here. This is the big why we're saved. For we, you and I, for we are his poema, poema. That's the Greek word here. Now it's translated differently in almost every translation of the Bible because we don't have a direct translation for this word poema. It, it, it's the root word for poetry, but we don't want to put poem here because it doesn't fully encapsulate what God's trying to say. So we say in the ESV, workmanship, work of art, creation, but the best translation of this word and the way it's being used here is masterpiece. Masterpiece. And you're going to see why this is so critical. For we are his masterpiece, poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, let me tell you where we get this wrong all the time. You ready for this? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for growing old, getting a promotion, getting an RV, and traveling on the weekends. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for showing up at church. As long as the pastor preaches what I like to hear and the music's good and the pews are comfortable and it's warm enough. For we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. When he says beforehand, he means before the creation of the earth. Before he laid the foundation of the earth, he knew you. He knew that sin would come. He knew there would be brokenness. He knew there would be a gap between humanity and him. He knew he would send his son. He knew he would raise you from the dead. He would seat you in the heavenly places at the right side of the throne room for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's our involvement after 10 verses. We don't get credit for anything other than being dead until the end, that now we should walk in them. That now. I want you to consider that the Bible says that you in Christ Jesus is now the masterpiece of God's creation. Consider something. Consider, consider God's resume for a moment, if you will. The sun makes up 99.8% of the mass of the solar system. It is so big that you could squeeze 1.3 million Earths inside of it. That's fairly large. There may be as many as three sextillion stars in the universe. You ever heard that number? I've never heard that number. That's because it's a three followed by 23 zeros. That's more stars in the universe than there are sand, uh, grains of sand on the earth. So you imagine the Sahara Desert, or Pismo, Sahara, you know, whatever. More than all of the grains of sand on the earth, there are stars in our universes and galaxies. In, in nature, they just discovered a new type of wasp that doesn't sting, it injects a paralytic into its prey and then flies the prey back to its nest and eats on it while it's alive. They call it the Dementor wasp from Harry Potter because it sucks your soul out. I would have called it the IRS wasp, but whatever. <laughs> You're, when, 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 do you know that when you, the amount of nerve endings that go into you seeing something are just in the, in the millions, and you actually, you actually see everything upside down, and your brain instantaneously turns it so you can see it right side up. Like, like, like just think about what God has created. When, when armadillos, ever seen an armadillo? Do you know they're actually bulletproof? There, there are all these stor stories of hunters shooting them and the bullets bouncing off. One guy shot it with his handgun and it bounced back and shot him in the jaw. A guy created a bulletproof animal. When God mentions the tempest in Job, he's just putting on, he's just talking about his power. Do you know that in a single hurricane, there's more energy created than 10,000 nuclear bombs going off? If you unraveled all of the DNA in your body and tried to, tried to lay it out in line, it would span 34 billion miles. That's how unique you are. It would reach to Pluto and back six times for one individual. What, what I'm trying to tell you is that at, it doesn't matter where you look in nature, it is mind-blowing, the intelligent design and power of the creator, and he looks at you with Christ in you and says, masterpiece. If we took a, an art gallery and filled it with nothing but the creations of God, every wing and every floor with just the absolutely enormity of what God has done, at the center of it, roped off where no one could touch it because it's his masterpiece, would be Christ in you. Christ in you, created for good works. But we don't, we don't look at ourselves that way. We have a perspective problem. In Psalm 139, it would say that God knows 
everything about me because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In Acts 17, it would say that God ordained and a lot of the times and the boundaries of everything about your life, that, that where you work today and where you live today and who you dwell with today were all part of a design that God knew beforehand so that in Christ, through good works, you would have an impact where you're at. It was not an accident. In Romans 12, he began to explain how there would be a variety of spiritual gifts that the body has that are different and that we would actually only function well because of those differences. This masterpiece, Christ in you, or Colossians 1.27 would say it this way, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Jesus in you, is both mystery and masterpiece. And we were created for good works. Now, let me tell you, the, the, let me tell you two things that we're going to get through at, with the last bit of time that we have remaining. And these two things are a local problem and, and, a, and a really a national problem. The local problem, and we're going we're gonna to work on this at the end, is that we really, th- this idea of you being, the Christ in you being the masterpiece is at the very core of the vision that we shared three weeks ago. And I'm going I'm to tie that together for you so that you see that. But, but, but it, it's a national problem in, it's really a Western cultural problem. Most of us uh, are probably born with a, a Western background, correct? I don't mean Western U.S. I mean like Western Earth, Right? I know some of you are like, no, I went on 23andMe, and I'm, I have a little bit of uh, Irish in me. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where you, where you kind of raised and grew up, and, and, the re- and that matters, right? Because but culturally, what, so what you and I would call intuition is really not um, an innate thing. It's, it's a learned thing. Intuition is just, when you're really intuitive, it just means you've been more of a sponge of the things that are around you. You take in more facts. You take in more observations. You take in more things. But all of that ends up being cultural in its nature. So, so culture has largely shaped how we see things around us. People that are very intuitive have just really been more observant of their culture, but they're still very biased toward the culture that we grew up in. And we have almost all exclusively been raised in a Western culture. And so because of that, we've done some really weird things. So the first thing that we've done is we've gone full circle in American church. All the way back in Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but even earlier, this guy named Martin Luther who nailed some theses on a wall, there was this thing called the Reformation in which we looked at Catholicism and this idea of there being professional clergy and then everybody else and went, hey, that's weird. It seems like we're supposed to be able to read the Bible, not just those guys. Now, there was a whole host of other things that went along with that, but the point is that we pushed back against this idea that there was this select group of people that Jesus was going to work through and that everybody else was going to sit on the sidelines and and cheer them on. And, And at the heart of the Reformation was this idea that Christ in you is the hope of glory, that Christ in you is the masterpiece, not Christ in me. And so we, hundreds of years ago, we push back and go, that is not what the Bible says. We got to get our heads around Christ in you being the hope of glory. And there, there was a lot of consternation. I'm really, this is a big abbreviation. You can go read about it. But this idea that God empowers us, not through some funky self-actualization therapy thing, but through a realization and a falling more and more in love with God as God works in us this transformation that works itself out in spiritual fruit and good works that we walk in to have an impact on a dark world. Unfortunately, in American church, over the course of the last 80 or so years, we've come full circle back to this concept that there's professional clergy and, and then there's everybody else. And, 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 and the statistics back it up, church after church after church, that, that, and you hear it, Phrase different ways, but I, I, could, I can point to you, pastor after pastor around the country that's having this, this same problem, pushing back against this stigma of this idea that there's this small select group of people that, that are going to go do the work and that they have the gifts and they're the ones that have Christ in them and everybody else is going to sit in a pew and be like, hey man, good job, pastor. Hope that works out for you. It's a problem for a bunch of reasons. One, no wonder you're bored. Who wants to watch? Gosh, this is awful. Go watch some sports or something. If you don't get to play, 
You know, in the NBA, they give an award every year called the six-man award. It's the guy that comes off the bench. He plays valuable minutes and stuff. There are no six-man awards in the church because you're never on the bench, ever. You're always trying to work out with fear and trembling what this looks like, Christ in you, and how do I apply this more in my life so that it impacts other people? Always. One of the reasons I love the NBA is that uh, it's, it, in Major League Baseball, and I'll never get this, they, the manager puts on a uniform. And they're usually pretty overweight. And they can't walk well. Because they, you know, so, so like every time they got to go out to the pitcher, they're like. <laughs> but they've got a uniform on, like they're going to go out and throw the ball. And you're like, you ain't playing. I like the NBA because the guy wears a suit and penny loafers. And you know he's not going to go dribble a basketball. But in the American church, we have this weird concept that somehow like the, the staff and the pastors are gonna go play the sport and all the rest of us are spectators and we're gonna eat a hot dog. And that is not church. I don't know what it is, but it's not church. Because there, there's no, nobody's on the bench in God's kingdom. The whole reason for salvation, the whole reason that he woke you from being dead, raised you up, put his spirit in you, replaced a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, put you in the kingdom at the right side of the throne in the throne room of God and called you a son or a daughter of God was for good works. So you could be the masterpiece of his creation and so that a dark world could see supernatural things occurring through you and go, well, what is that? What is that? Because I want some of that. And it's not the pastors they're looking at. It's the welders. It's the oil field workers. It's the electricians and the Sunday school teachers and the regular teachers and the moms at home taking care of kids and Christ is shining through them and people are going, what is that? What is that? Guys, if this is left up to 20-something staff members at a church to do all of the, the works of God and the rest of us are all going to sit around, you're going to get bored and you're going to go find a new hobby, and you should, because this is a terrible one. But it's, that's not what this is. We, we have some problems in American culture. Here's the first. In Western civilization, um, we are largely mechanistic. Okay, I'm gonna explain what that means. That's a weird word. We're largely mechanistic. What that means is in Western culture, we really believe in this idea that we can create a process that everything we feed into one end will come out the same on the other side, okay? This is largely a Western belief. And you can see this everywhere. You see it in our academic systems. You can see it in our government. You can see, I don't care where you You can see it in our churches. This idea that like if we just, we, we make a certain process and we funnel everybody in that they'll all come out with the same result. That's why we have standardized testing in schools. We're just going to funnel everybody in. We're going to teach them the same series of things in the same ways, and they're all going to come out, and they're all going to get A's, right? You know, it hasn't worked, but we haven't changed it. <clears throat> That's not how the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God work. The reason you're a masterpiece is you are unique. I just talked about how unique your DNA is, that you have like billions of miles of DNA that make you so unique. And then God in you is going to make you into something that is absolutely integral for the body and is unique. And if, if you weren't here doing that work, pushing into what God is doing, we would miss, right? Take an organ out of your body and see how well things go. Anyone want to try something without like, you know, I don't know, stomach, lungs, liver? I mean, things don't go well. I mean, gallbladder. I heard someone say something. I'm a gallbladder. I produce bile. I'm like, okay, look, I don't know what gift that is. <laughs> but I know if I took it out of my body, things would be very painful. Right? The Bible would say in 1 Corinthians that it is the parts of the, the, the body that we don't even talk about that are actually the most integral. And he's talking about the church. In order to push into what Christ in you looks like, we'll do everything we can, I'll talk about our plan in a minute, uh, to encourage you to pursue Christ, but there will not be a very specific formula. There's not gonna be a perfect method where if I funnel the whole church into one end, they all come out the same the other end. 
<laughs> Does it work that way? I, listen, I wish it did. <laughs> you better believe I wish it did. First of all, I'm very analytical and I love plans. The reason we have a handbook for the church and it's called a handbook. I wanted it to be called a handbook because I like bullet points and I want plans and I want to predict what the future is. That's not how it works. It works when each of us individually begins to come to this slow dawning realization of how good God is and what it meant for him to save us and why he's so involved in our lives. And we begin as we fall in love. You don't fight sin with a list of morals. You don't fight sin by hitting someone over the head with their Bible. I would, I would love to try with a few of y'all. You fight sin with affection for God and one another. And as you fall more deeply in love with God, you find yourself not tempted to go back to the same false saviors that you've tried over and over and over again have never worked. The, the way this is going to work is messy and organic and looks different and frankly is frightening. And the best I can tell you is you gotta go put your feet in the water. Because the whole, ancient theologians once called following the prompting and move of the Holy Spirit, they called it the wild goose chase. Because the Holy Spirit is gonna take you in countless directions as God transforms you. And, and no one's gonna be able to predict exactly what it looks like. I can just tell you this, it's gonna glorify God, it's gonna love people, and it's gonna make you more tender. So we've gotta push back about, uh, against this Western idea that everything's gotta be a mechanism. What does that mean for you and I? It means there's not going to be a ministry, a formal ministry for everything that God's telling you to do. There can't be, there'd be too many minutes. We'd have 700 ministries. It'd never work. But, but, but again, this is a, we're trapped sometimes in our thinking and the way we've been brought up in our culture. I had someone tell me recently, I don't know, Daniel, how anyone in your church is ever gonna be able to read the Bible if you don't teach them an adult Bible study on Sunday mornings. It's the only way people can learn how to read the Bible. That's the only way? Yep. I feel like that hasn't actually been around that long. <laughs> How did people learn to read the Bible before that? But you understand where that comes from, right? That, that just comes from someone going, listen, uh, in my observation in our culture, there has to be a ministry or mechanism in order for something to work. And God laughs at us sometimes. And he's like, have you met me? You wanna tell me about that plan for Jericho again? What did that ministry look like? So we're gonna have to push back against some of this, this mechanistic idea. And the, the, the second problem that you and I have because we, we grew up in a Western culture is that uh, we have this tendency to be very naturalistic. And what I mean by that is uh, we're very physical. We need to see it to believe it. American culture, particularly Western culture, is not big on the supernatural. Am I right? I mean, those things, let's be honest, those things scare us just a little bit. Okay, like we start talking too much about the Holy Spirit, too much about the supernatural, too much about the spiritual realm, too much about demons or Satan. It's kind of, has anyone seen Encanto, the new Disney movie? You, you, no, four of you? Good Lord. It's kind of like a song, We Don't Talk About Bruno. You know what I'm talking about. We're just like, oh gosh, that makes us feel really weird. Listen, that's largely actually our, our culture that is pushing back on us. Because there are other cultures that are very open to spiritual things and it's, just, it's very different in those countries. Go to Taiwan, they're doing, <laughs> they have no problem talking about the supernatural. Now, it's not necessarily Christian supernatural, they just don't have a problem with it, but we do. And so as God begins to work in our lives, we, we have this filter that says, boy, if I can't see it, I can't believe it. And we push back against a lot of the things that God's doing in our lives, where he's working on us and he's prompting us, he's drawing us to other people to do the good works we see in verse 10. And we're pushing back on it because we're like, well, listen, if there's not a ministry for it, if there's not a very specific process for it, if I can't see it physically, then I'm just not gonna touch any of those things. And God's like, listen, you're the masterpiece not your church not the ministry not the Sunday school class you 
Three weeks ago, when we were talking about what does this, the vision for our church look like, I don't, I don't know if, if any of you caught this, if you kind of you unveiled the, the big missing element here, but in, in the, the vision for our church, there aren't a lot of specifics. Anyone catch that? Why? Because you haven't told me what they are yet. I, I can't tell you how the Holy Spirit is going to do this in your life. I can tell you some general things about it according to the Bible, but not the specifics yet, because that will require you falling more deeply in love with God, choosing him over the things that want your time, affection, attention, chasing after him. And listen, here's some things that we are gonna do, and you're gonna see this. Here's what we're gonna do to help you do that. I talked about putting your feet in the water, right? Remember the analogy as they're crossing into the promised land? Someone remembers three weeks ago, right? Okay, good Lord, thank you. Sometimes. We talked about putting your feet in the water and watching as God responds. One of the things that we're gonna do is, is we're gonna create, do our best to create environments. And those environments are meant to foster Christian relationships. They're meant to foster you falling in love with the Lord. They're, they're, they're gonna be scriptural, Bible-based. So that's why we have such a huge push on small groups is we know that over time, if you will get around other believers, you'll do life with them, you'll be vulnerable. It's based around the Bible. God will do that work. Now, if I'm being really honest, I want the environments in our church to be a slippery slope. Now, you always hear slippery slope in the negative connotation, right? That you, you kind of chase a little bit of sin and the next thing you do, you're all the way down thing. I wanna create the opposite type of slippery slope where you're thinking about putting your toe in the water and you just slip and go all the way in. That's the kind of slippery slope I wanna create here is if you'll just take a step of faith toward God, the next thing you know, you're waist deep and you're going, this wrecked my life and it's great. That kind of slippery slope. We want to create environments that cultivate passion for Jesus through relationship building in Scripture. Secondly, we want, when we recognize, we want ways to recognize what God's doing in you. And so we're always working on pathways to recognize when God's moving in a small group, uh, in a person, when, when spiritual gifts are coming out, when they're making themselves present, when we see the evidence of that, we want to respond in kind. Now, there's not going to be 700 ministries, but we're going to do everything we can to create pathways to help you recognize and utilize your gifts. And thirdly, we want to create a culture that honors it. We're talking a lot about honoring lately. Well, we're not honoring you for the sake of you we're honoring you when we see Christ showing through you. One, because that's worth honoring according to the Bible, but secondly, because we want to encourage you to do it again. Man, if you respond in faith to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and we see it, I wanna go, whoa. Hey, I just, that's awesome. Even if it didn't work out, the fact that you responded in faith because God was moving you and wooing you to do something is actually the pattern you have to establish in your life to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And so we want to create a culture and when we see it, we name it in a very good way. Not, not, not false compliments, not patting you on the head. When we see... I need you to do this too. It can't be, it can't be a, 20 staff members. When, when you see Christ showing through someone's life, that's worthy of honor. And the Bible says that we should, we should want to outdo one another in showing honor. It should be a competition. Game on, son. Let's go. How can I... Now, to do that, I gotta pay attention to what's going on in other people's lives, Right? Right? Like, so if I come in 10 minutes late to service and I don't make eye contact and I sit in the back and then I get out as quickly as possible and I don't get in a small group and I don't serve in a ministry anywhere and I don't make any relationships with anyone and I'm like, how would I honor someone? I, I don't know either. You see the problem. But if I begin to do life with people, I begin to pay attention to what's going on in their lives and I begin to watch their struggles, and then I begin to see the winds where the spirit breaks through in their life and begins to, to press back against that fleshly nature, I want to honor it. I want to encourage it. I want to stir it up. I want to stoke that fire because that is the Bible's formula. It's not a mechanism. It's not a method. 
It's falling more deeply in love with the Lord so you come to a better revelation or perspective of how good God is and what he's doing in you because you were saved to walk in good works. That's why you were saved. To be God's masterpiece behind the velvet rope in the middle of the museum for everyone to see. Now, to do that, you're gonna have to be involved in people's lives and you're gonna have a heck of a struggle and I'm here for it. Amen? That's what I wanna do with you over the course of the next, I don't know, 10, 20, 50, 100 years, however long God lets me live. Could be next week, I'm teaching someone how to drive. (laughs) I'm gonna close the service with just this. I just, I, I don't want you to miss this. What God has put in you is what he calls, not what I call, what he calls the hope of glory and the masterpiece of all creation. You're gonna walk out of here today and just like you came in here, you're not gonna get, just like me, you're not gonna have this, you're not yet gonna be able to fully see the greatness of God. You're not yet gonna be able to fully see the plan that God has for your life. You're not yet gonna be able to fully understand how much God loves you. It's not there yet. It'll never be there until we get to heaven and we get to see the whole thing. And if I'm honest, I kind of personally believe it would blow our brains up if we could see the whole thing at once. I don't think I could handle it. But you're gonna walk out of here today, hopefully, seeing a little bit more of how much God loves you, seeing a little bit more of what his plan looks like for you and realizing that your job Monday through Saturday is architecting things in your life in such a way that you can meet God more frequently to fall in love with him. And as you do that, you'll begin to see things that he reveals to you in your life and in the lives of the people around you and it's him drawing you into his kingdom work. And listen, I've never been as encouraged for this church as I have been over the course of 2022 because I'm getting to see it happen in you. And it's happening all the time. And the staff just sit around and talk about it. Did you see this? Did you hear this? Did you see what's happening in this person's life? Did you see this marriage getting restored? Did you see this person repenting? Did you see this person coming to Christ? Did you see this son or daughter who was estranged coming back? Like we're just watching it again and again and again. And we're trying to tell you it's happening. It's happening. And, 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 and if you wanna be part of the movement like we saw in Acts 2 or 3, like where Pentecost comes and, and just, it's, it's wild, I'm just gonna tell you two things, buckle up and, 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 and be prepared to move when God leads. Because we're not gonna be able to predict when and where and how. Let me pray for us. Father God, we uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done for waking us from being spiritually dead, God, for saving us from our sin and penalty, God, for raising us up and putting us in in the throne room, God, at the the right hand of your throne and giving us a status and an authority, God, and God, God, that you have not just saved us once, but that you save us and change us every single day, God, and we desire to be a people that honors you, God, because we're, we're just learning what it means that you love us. God, help us, help us to love others. Help us to grant them the same sort of patience you grant us. Help us to look at a broken world and realize we're just as broken. God, help us to be sensitive to the work of your spirit, God, to be willing to chase you as you lead and, and God, to honor one another when we see Christ showing through. God, we love you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this city that needs you. We thank you for this country that needs you. We thank you for choosing us to be ambassadors, to be soldiers, God, to fight sin with affection. In Jesus' name, amen.